Mm. Right, well, good morning. Ah, yeah. <laughs> well, we could have had a different question during that time. I could, John could have asked you to um, share your monthly income with the person next to you. <laughs> You're laughing, but some of you are squirming. I did think, I almost toyed with the idea of bringing it up and trying to really seriously convince you I wanted you to do that. But it would make you squirm. There are certain topics, aren't there, that we don't like to talk about, particularly if you are having a polite dinner party. Sex, politics, money. And those are the three things that we really like to um, avoid. There's something about um, money that brings up really powerful emotions in us. Uh, it can be shame, can be jealousy, could be anger, frustration, could be pride. And I don't know about you, but um, as a child, I know this won't be the case for, for everyone, but for me as a child, I've gave it a second thought. Just wasn't something on my radar. And certainly for my children, whenever they see something, they automatically assume that I, they could have it, that Potentially, I can afford it, but I'm just being mean. <laughs> uh, worrying about money is ingrained in us. Uh, somebody has said that it's like an epidemic gripping our society. And I hate the way that worrying about money can make me feel. Um, I, I got to confess I do it more than I should. It's, um, it results in lack of sleep, um, and it affects other areas of my life. I don't know about you, but um, money worries can uh, waste a lot of what we think about. We could be thinking about better things, but maybe we're thinking about money. It can stop us enjoying life. It uh, can keep you up at night, as I've said. It can lead to headaches, stomach aches, even ulcers. Um, and let's face it, money can put a strain on our relationships, whether that is how we split the bill or how we split our will, <laughs> because we all know that people can fight over that. And divorce cases, financial disagreements can often be a really, really nasty part of that. Coping with worries about finance affect us as well in, in our coping strategies. So we might withdraw more, or we might eat more, or eat less, or we might smoke more in a way of trying to cope. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, to be honest, I don't really struggle with finance. Well, that's brilliant, but I'm sure that you know someone who does. So fortunately for us, the Bible is full of stuff about money. Uh, I guess because it's always been something that's uh, a kind of a hot topic. And so when we delve into the Bible today, we'll be able to see some, not all, but some of what the Bible says about it. So we're going to be looking at the book of James. Now... Um, if you want to find it, we're looking at James chapter 5. In the green Bibles, if you want one in front of you, 
you're welcome to take it. Sometimes it can help because particularly if I say something like, oh, in verse 3 it says, you can like check it out. James 5 is on page 1,216. 1,216. And it's the end of James and the beginning of First Peter. So if you're trying to find it, it's right, right at the back of the book. Or you can look at the index, and it will give you the the number as well, but I've given you. So 1,216. And you see at the top, there's a large five, which means chapter five. So we're just going to read that very first little bit, verse one to six. It says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. The last days just means since Jesus. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who made your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Now, you're probably thinking at the moment, what a joyous verse for a dedication day. (laughs) It'll be okay, I promise you. So, James. James was Jesus' half-brother. And the interesting thing about James was when Jesus was walking and doing all his miracles, James just thought he was crazy. He was part of that family that wanted to take control of him because they thought he'd gone, quite frankly, a bit mad. But afterwards, after Jesus' death, the resurrection, James sees Jesus alive and he becomes a passionate believer and follower of Jesus. And he ends up leading the Jerusalem church. Now, if you imagine, this is the large church. This is the start of the Christian faith. And he's leading this church. They are Jewish. Almost, they'll be 100% Jewish at the moment. And there is persecution. Like many countries today, the Christians were persecuted. They were considered heretics. They had left Judaism and they'd gone off to follow this guy called Jesus who they did not, definitely did not believe was the Messiah. And the result of the persecution that they'd experienced had led to the church being scattered. They had become displaced people. They'd had to move within the Roman Empire to go to safe places because it was no longer safe for them in Jerusalem. The interesting thing about the book of James is it's often ignored, but it was the or one of the first uh, pieces of writing that we have from that time, probably written before AD 50. This is probably one of the pieces of writing that's closest to Jesus. And so when we're reading it, we can look at it and know as a historical artifact that this is writing from that very, very early time when the followers of Jesus were working out what does it mean to follow him. 
James's um, teaching style is really direct. He he doesn't uh, he doesn't ever gives you it sugarcoated. He's really going to hit you with what he says. He's a very direct person. He's also rhetorical. He asks lots of questions that the obvious answer is yes or no, and he loves pictures. If you imagine him as your pastor, he would have been full of pictures trying to show you, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Here's a picture of this, and he's painting that in words. It's generally agreed that James's community were poor. In times of persecution, perhaps they wouldn't, if they'd become Christians, people would stop coming to them to buy things. Say they were a shopkeeper, no one wants to buy your food anymore. If you're a carpenter, no one wants to buy your furniture anymore because you are, um, you're someone who's left the faith. You're no longer part of the community. And they would have been feeling this kind of um, oppression and um, discrimination within the community they lived And that's why lots of people say, well, this word perhaps wasn't for the community, but was rather a kind of prophetic word against those who were doing injustice to them and an encouragement to them that God was watching what was happening. And it was never going to go unnoticed. That there would come a day when those people would have to give an account before their Lord for what they had done. Now, if you imagine James within this community, he might, as some say, have struggled to imagine a rich Christian. But we know that in our culture, that is the case. There are wealthy Christians. So is it okay to have wealth? Is it okay to be a rich Christian? Throughout the history of the Christian church, there's been different opinions. There was the monastic communities who would take a vow of poverty so that they could most closely identify with Jesus and his poverty. Or they would flee from wealth because they would say, that is the root of all sorts of evils and I want nothing to do with it. And then on the other extreme, we know all too well the televangelist that sits there going, I can make you rich. God wants you to be rich and just donate here first and then you can have your money. Rich wealth and, and religion is always open to corruption like any other area of life. But let's look at these words um, that we've got in James. And if you look at the words that says, your wealth has rotted and the moths have eaten your clothes, verse 2, that should remind you of something that Jesus said. Here it is in Matthew. I often note this, that James feels like he's really, really, really going for me. But then I notice Jesus said it also. So let's look at what Jesus said. He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." The word store up, I've underlined it for you, because in James's passage, we see the word translated as hoard. But it's actually the same word, to store up, to hoard, exactly the same. 
James's teaching style, as I said, is like Jesus, full of pictures. And it's not surprising that in our passage here, he gives wealth a personality. He personifies it. It is going to come and testify against a person. It's going one step step further. Jesus said um, where people will uh, break in and steal, James goes even further and says, you don't even need to worry about hoarding because it might be stolen or you might lose it but rather it's going to testify against you. And it's going to make you miserable. It talks in the end of that about um, how you have hoarded wealth in the last days. It says, the the corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. What a horrific picture. It will cause you, he's saying, excruciating pain. Both Jesus and James direct our attention to hoarding, storing up, piling up stuff. So much so that it spoils. If you look at what James says again in that verse, it says, not that they will testify, but the corrosion, the rust will rise up and testify you. Now, it's easy for us to disregard this because I don't know, might be, but I don't think many of us have a gold store at home that's piling up. Not many of us will have a, I don't know, a safe at home where you're like stockpiling. I don't know, maybe you do, Jeff. You're looking like smiling. (laughs) But I'm sure we all have the odd item that we've purchased that we've never worn or the electronic item that we really needed, but we only used it once. Here's my confession. I bought this three years ago, and I have never worn it. I know. The shame. We were desperate to find Rob's hoard, because there used to be a box in our loft, and he's sitting so smug today, because the box used to say, Rob's junk to keep, Rob's job to keep, and it moved from his parents' house to the next house, to our house. It was never opened other than, I will keep this. And it lives there. But he went up to get it, and it's gone. (laughs) It turns out last summer, he did a really, really ruthless clean of our loft, so he sits there very smug today. But I'm sure lots of us, and there are other things, have got drawers full of wires and plugs and things like this that's piling up around us. And although keeping things to recycle, reuse is not a bad thing, it is an indication perhaps of what we have bought in the past. We all buy and have more stuff than we need. We are immersed in a chronic consumer society. Companies are paying millions of pounds to make you buy their product. And remember, when we're buying their product, we're not even buying their product. We're buying an idea of something that it will make us happy or more successful or more peaceful or um, it will make us more popular. The ridiculousness of the adverts that we see in front of us where we've got, I don't know, I've been watching a lot of perfume adverts recently. What are they about? 
la, 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 they're hugging, they're da, 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 and there's this perfume. What is that about? And yet, it works. When we're feeling perhaps low or a bit depressed that day, or we've had an argument, there's something within us that says, if I just buy something, it will help with this situation. Um, companies are paying a lot, and they're paying it because they know that it works. In the wisdom section of the Bible, we find these words. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it will a wall too high to scale. Now, wealth promises much security. Uh, And don't get me wrong, because I know education, a safe place to stay, um, a healthcare system are really important, and they do lead to safety. But we equally know that wealth can't guard against some things. And if you spend a moment even now thinking, what can wealth not save me from? You'll know there is much. Wealth promises a safe place to live that no one can ever, ever break into. But that's not true. Wealth promises a great health private care system that you can never, ever leave without being healed from. But we know that that's not true. The New Testament, another letter, we get these words in Timothy. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Like the fable of, you ever seen that fable where the fox goes in a tree and eats too much food and then he can't get out the hole? Wealth is a little bit like that for us. When we pursue money and wealth, it becomes a trap to us. It will ultimately not deliver what we want, and we will find ourselves more wrapped up in a trap than ever. King Solomon was the wealthiest of all the kings of Israel. He had an exorbitant amount of wealth. He had an unbelievable harem, if you like that sort of thing. He could indulge in anything he wanted. And yet, he wrote in his books that it was all meaningless. Here it says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And we all know that's true because when we're asked how much money do we need... It is always just a little bit more than we have. Wealth will always be a trap when we think it's the answer to what we need. When we start focusing on money, the trap leads us to do all sorts of things we would never dream of doing normally. We see in big companies how they become driven by the shareholders who want to just make 
more money and the effect that that has. And we'll have worked perhaps in those situations where the workers of the company count for nothing. What is important is the bottom line of how much the company has made. We begin uh, compromising in other things because as, we, as our wage becomes our goal, we neglect the things we know are so important, like family and friends and time together. Those things get pushed aside as we get more and more trapped. And we've all heard people say, you know, you won't get to your life and think, I wish I'd spent another hour in the office. Well, it's true, isn't it? You'll wish you spent time on something more valuable. James uh, talks about people who've lived in luxury. Look at verse 5 now. So what about these people that have lived in luxury? Verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself up in the day of slaughter. Sounds nice. James paints another picture. He's saying it's like animals who are eating and thinking they have the good life, but as they get fatter, they're getting closer to the knife. I love the message translation of this verse. I'll read it to you. It says, you've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) The words here in verse 5, yourself, it means heart or soul. So it's a picture of indulging ourselves in a consumer-sick society where we feel trapped by greed and all the time our souls are dying. Jesus asked this question, for what does it promise a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Pretty obvious, isn't it? Nothing. But Jesus offers an antidote to this. Okay, we can try not doing it, but Jesus offers an antidote. And if we go back to what he said in Matthew's gospel... He says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus wants us to big time hoard, but not here on earth. He wants us to stockpile, but not here on earth. So what about treasures in heaven? What does it mean? The Jews understood it to be deeds of mercy, deeds of kindness to people in distress. It's pretty simple, really. Jesus himself points that out in Luke's gospel, where he says, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail. And he's referring to giving to the poor. Jesus equates treasure in heaven with giving. And this is a perfect expression of what James earlier called the royal law. To love your neighbor as yourself. The wealth we have at our disposal is our choice. It's from God, but it's for us to use. 
we get to decide how we use it. And we're called to manage it well within the context of this, storing treasures in heaven. It's our responsibility. No one can tell us what to do. You can't look at anyone else and go, I don't think they're doing it very well. It's up for us to look at our heart and our finances and say, hmm, where am I stockpiling right now? And we'll all have an answer. Choosing consistently and exclusively to spend only on ourselves and our family is always going to be attractive. Bottom line, we love ourselves and we love our family, and that is okay, but it has to be more. We've got to love our neighbor, that is anyone, as ourselves. Basic psychology shows that we get more joy from giving than spending on ourselves. It backs up what it says here. Giving to others is our antidote. So as followers of Jesus, we not only have a responsibility to manage what God gives us and to give well, but we also have a responsibility to trust him for all we need. Jesus said, when talking to people who were worrying about finance, he said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. When we make it our goal to store up treasure in heaven, by seeking God's kingdom, by doing that, by genuinely loving our neighbor as ourselves. We keep this royal law, and it is the antidote to this hoarding and this trap. When we do this, Jesus makes a promise, and all these things will be given to you as well. This is the exchange he's offering. You give me all you are worried about and get on with doing what I've asked you to do. And I will take care of all you are worrying about. The problem is too often we want to just keep it and not give it. Or we keep it and we try and give it, but we take it back. But the antidote is... I'm worrying about this. I will give it to you. And I will now worry about her or him or them. And I will leave you, God, to take care of all this for me. So this week, let's bring it back. How are we going to store treasure in heaven? How will we be more concerned about God's kingdom than our own? What would it look like to give over your worries to him and worry about someone else's worries? To be part of God's solution for them? Do you need this week to sit down with other Christians and say, we really need to get on top of our finances. We're not quite sure whether, whether we're handling or managing them well. We feel like it's becoming a burden to us. Do you need to do that? Do you need to ask forgiveness from God? God, I 
I know I've been hoarding recently. I've been coming more and more concerned. I'm just giving it to you again. As a church, we get to join in with what God's doing, don't we? We can easily, any of us, know, we can give straight away. We can say, I'm going to be more concerned with refugees that are living in tents. I'm going to be more concerned with children that don't get presents this Christmas than my own children who will get far too many. You could start by saying, I'm going to be more concerned with people who won't eat on Christmas Day rather than what I will eat on Christmas Day. Can you see? We can change. At this time of year, consumerism is at its highest and everywhere is pressure. But we can remove that pressure by turning away from that and saying, what do you want me to do this Christmas, God? How do you want me to build your kingdom and store my treasures in heaven for eternity? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have blessed us all differently and we've all got different resources at our fingertips. Give us wisdom to know how to use them. Where we're worrying about it, help us to give it to you. Help us to get our hearts and minds firmly on your things, on your kingdom, on your needs, on your requirements. Help us to trust you with all our resources and to build a stockpile in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.